Wait, good morning. Come on, you can do better than that. Good morning. Hey, it's good to be in uh, the house, uh, Mission House. I um, am excited about having an opportunity to worship with you. Uh, I heard about your uh, passion for this community, the Rowan County, and uh, just the, the work that you've been doing has uh, gone before you, and many are talking about what's happening uh, in this church. And I'm excited to be able to be a part of something that uh, Pastor Anthony and Pastor Dustin are giving leadership to. So if you join me in just kind of celebrating them and their families and just the great leaders that they are to Mission House, you know, I celebrate the fact that they do walk in that prophetic anointing uh, as well as understanding that a lot of what needs to happen uh, in our communities must be community-based uh, and must be understood through the lens of uh, justice and through the lens of engagement. And so I'm very thankful to, to them. Uh, I, I bring you greetings uh, from our national uh, or actually international headquarters in Indianapolis, uh, Indiana, uh, the Wesleyan Church headquarters where Dr. Wayne Schmidt is our general superintendent. Uh, we have about 1,700 churches here in North America, about 5,000 worldwide. So I greet you on behalf of him, as well as our district superintendent, uh, Pastor Jonathan Lewis in the North Carolina East District. Uh, we celebrate what God is doing uh, both here and around uh, the world. Uh, I want to dive right in. I, I kind of feel like a lion being let out of a cage. Amen. And so I want to dive right into the, to the message. But as I do that, I want to I ask you a couple questions that hopefully you'll ponder uh, throughout the message. When things don't go your way, will you remain faithful? Um, when, when life gets chaotic, um, when things get cray-cray, come on, say amen, somebody. Will, will you lean in and trust God, or will you try to do things in your own strength? If I were to use a title, if I were to use a subject uh, for today, it would be frustrated but faithful. Frustrated but faithful. Let's pray. Father, we know the flower fades, the wet grass withers, but your word stands forever. Uh, move me in the background. Would you be at the forefront? Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Speak into this place. God, show us what you want us to see and understand and give us the courage to respond in obedience. It's in the matchless name of Jesus we pray. Somebody shout amen. amen. I think all of us, if we're honest, if we're honest, I think all of us kind of live uh, in the tension of, of two realities. Uh, one of them um, we like, usually. Uh, the other one, not so much. And I'm going to kind of give some, some working definitions of these things, if you don't mind. So let's start with this first one. This first one is called favor. Everybody shout favor. Everybody likes to sit in the seat of favor. Favor, favor is when um, you get des uh, blessings that you don't even really deserve. Favor is, is when you're thankful and, and you see God at work and, and you can't really uh, understand or predict when and how he does it. He just chooses to show you favor. Somebody shout favor. Uh, favor is when things exceed your expectations. Somebody say favor. But that's not the only thing we find when we walk with God. We also find that there are times when we must sit in the seat of frustration. Frustration is when uh, you actually, you don't say this out loud, but you actually think, God, I deserve better than this. Uh, God, God, uh, it's when, when what, hap what happens around you uh, your expectation is far from your reality. We'll call that frustration. Somebody say frustration. Now, you notice the, 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 the octave of your voice was a little different with favor than it was with frustration. Like, nobody wants to be frustrated. Nobody wants life and, and the realities that we experience to not meet our expectations. But the reality is when we walk with God, oftentimes we find ourselves in the land in between. We, we find ourselves uh, in between where we were and where we're going. 
We find ourselves between what we know God said and what we are experiencing. Oh, y'all hearing what I'm saying? We, we'll call that frustration. But then there's this middle ground that, that I, I hope all of us learn to rest in, and it's, it's this land of faithfulness. Somebody say faithful. Faithfulness is, is when we show our true and constant support and loyalty to God. It, it is keeping our promises no matter what's going on around us. It's, it's obedience stretched out over time. So when things go rough, when things don't go as you expect them, will you remain faithful? God, God I love you, but, but God, I, I, I trust you, but see, there are always these buts in our lives. And I want to challenge you, in the midst of your frustration, will you remain faithful? Let me give you a couple examples of these favor and frustrations. So uh, let me, somebody shout favor. Uh, several years ago, a, a friend of mine invited me to come preach at his, his uh, youth group for a retreat. And, and, and when he invited me, I said, you know, bet, I'm with you. I, I got this. I, I, I'm with you, man, whatever you need. You know, so he invited me. And, and uh, about a week or so before I go, you know, I do what I normally do. I, I, I call, I reach out and try to get clarification, make sure I'm understanding what he's looking for, what he needs, so that I can be prayerful about that time with him. And so uh, he tells me, oh, man, by the way, I forgot to tell you that the retreat is actually a hoedown. I said, a hoe what? He said, it's actually a hoedown. How many of y'all have ever been to a hoedown before? Mm-hmm, like two people. And, um, and I was in that boat. I didn't know what a hoedown was, and so I'm starting to Google it while I'm, while I'm talking to him, and I didn't even spell it right the first time. I, uh, a hoedown, what is a hoedown? And all of a sudden, I started seeing these images pop up, you know, images you see on the screen, you know, of boots and, and bandanas and cowboy hats and, and big buckles and, and line dancing. I'm like, that's a hoedown? And you want me to speak at your hoedown? Absolutely, man, you got this. And I'm a brother. I grew up kind of in the hood. If y'all ain't saying, come on, say amen, somebody. You know, a little poor, not really sure what hoedowns were. But I grew up in the South. But so I'm like, okay, okay, I, I, I got you, man. I'm going to pray. You know, and it snowed that weekend. And so I'm like, God, please, let, let this thing be canceled. You know, um, and, and, and so I'm driving down to it. I'm like, surely not, they're not going to have this hoedown. And I take two students with me that, I, you know, I normally, they're, they're, they felt called to ministry. And so we, we go together. And as we're riding, I said, have any of y'all been to hoedown? There was silence. I said, well, all of us can check this off our bucket list once we get there. So we arrive, and the parking lot is full. I'm like, oh, God, we're going in. And so we walk in, and the music is blaring, and you can hear the commotion of people. And, and I walk in, I look around the, the room, and there are only two people of color in the room. And I brought the other one. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, it was and, and so I go in, and I, I preach this simple message about God's grace and God's love. About 20 students give their life to Christ that night. Somebody shout favor. In the midst of my uncertainty, in the midst of my doubt, to be honest, I really didn't want to be there. But the reality is sometimes, in spite of us, God shows us favor. <laughs> Somebody shout favor. Yes, yeah. All of us love to walk in favor, experience favor, but that's not the only thing we experienced. 2006 was an interesting year for us. Um, my mom died in 2006, unexpectedly. Uh, in 2006, we bought our first home together as a married couple. In 2006, we had this amazing youth conference where uh, hundreds and hundreds of, of young people came uh, to this youth conference. And, and in the midst of the youth conference, one of the, one of the speakers, she was a, a local prophet, she, she came up and she said to my wife and I, she said, by, by the end of next year, you and your wife will have a child together. By the end of next year. And so we had not, we had had a child together at that time. And so uh, we said, we receive it, right? And, and so a couple months later, we find out we're pregnant. <laughs> Woo! Walking in the favor of the anointing and the prophetic word. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? So everybody was excited. Everybody at the church was excited. They remembered the prophet said this publicly. And then in November that year, right around this time, actually, 2006, we're at a doctor's office for a regular appointment, and the doctor goes out and comes back in. Doctor goes out and comes back in, and she looks at my wife and I. She says, I can't find a heartbeat. And our baby died. And I'm like, wait, God, is that what you meant? 
when the prophet prophetically spoke at this conference to hundreds of people that we would have a child, and this is what we get. And, and if you know my story, you know that I have a 22-year-old that actually lives in Charlotte, and I had her out of wedlock my first year in college. And, and now I'm married. I'm trying to do it the right way. And this, this is what you give us, God? Frustration. Frustration. Frustration is when you, you feel like you deserve better. You, you feel like you deserve more, and you, you can't really understand what God is up to and why is he doing it? Why is it taking so long? And, and, and then if you understand what's happening now, now, because see, our young people heard this prophetic word. Now we got to go back and we got to share it with our family. We got we to deal with this privately, and eventually we got to go public. And, and eventually we had to tell our youth group, we, we lost the baby. Eventually, we had to tell our church we, we lost the baby. And, and I'll never forget what God asked me in those moments, both my wife and I. He said, do you trust me? Because it's easy, it's easy to walk with God when there's favor. Everybody wants favor. Everybody wants the blessings that you know you don't deserve. Everybody wants to see things happen in a way that you see the, almost like the, the sky parts and God shows up. But how oh, few of us want to walk with God when things get frustrating and we can't see our way out and we we trust God but we don't know what he's up to if you can relate to those two stories you'll be able to relate to where we're going today we're going to talk about this guy by the name of Joseph somebody shout Joseph uh, we're going to talk about Joseph and, and see the challenge that we have, because maybe for you, maybe it's not a baby. May, maybe it's not a, a, a death, but maybe your frustration is our political reality. Uh, uh, maybe yours is, is with your family. Maybe yours is with your friends. Maybe yours is with your church. Maybe yours is with your health or where you work or the community you live in. But all of us can relate to the frustration that comes when we're trying to be faithful. And here in this text that we're going to deal with in Genesis chapter 37, we find this guy by the name of Joseph. Somebody shout Joseph. Joseph is this young teenager, and he's, he's dealing with some things. Verse 3 says this. It says, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had borne him. He had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that, they, that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. Somebody shout hate. These are his brothers now. Verse 4 said they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now let me say this as we get started. Uh, this is a narrative. Somebody shout narrative. Now, now, I'm Wesleyan now, but I ain't always been Wesleyan. I, I kind of grew up Baptocostal, and I'm, I'm one of those preachers that need you to talk back to me. Somebody shout narrative. Yeah, get used to your neighbor because you might be slapping them and high-fiving them, elbowing them the whole time. But somebody shout narrative. Narratives are not always normative. Uh, what, what do I mean by that? Uh, narratives, there's, there's no guarantee that what's happening in Joseph's life is going to happen to you or for you. But what we do know as we look at narratives is we know two things. What we know is that God cares for his people no matter what's going on around them and no matter what's going on inside of them, God cares. Now, that, that's good to know. For some of you, that's all you needed today is that God cares. God cares. He cares about what's going on around you. He cares about what's going on inside of you. God cares. The second thing that's important to know about narratives is that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. And you'll notice in the text that there's always this lower story at work and there's always an upper story at work. What do I mean by that, preacher? Uh, what I mean is, is that you'll always see that there's some things that are going on in Joseph's life on the ground, so to speak. Things that are going on inside of him. Things that are going on around him. We'll call that the lower story. And there will always be a lower story in your life. Things that are going on inside of you and things that are going on around you. Things that you can see. Things that you can touch. People that you can relate to. But then there's always an upper story at work, and we must understand what the upper story is. The, the upper story is God's work at a macro level, that God is, his, has a plan to redeem his people and to bring love and hope and peace to a world that desperately needs it. And so while you're dealing with the lower story, you must always be tuned in to the upper story that's at work at the same time. God cares about both, and he challenges us to care about both too. But sometimes, 
when you're living here, it's hard to think about the macro because all you can see is the micro. All I can see is the frustration. But God is at work. He's not just at work in your life. He's at work in your family's life. He, he's not just at work at your family's life, but he's at work at the church. He's not just at work at the church, but he's at work in your community. He's not just at work in the community, but he's at work in your state. He, he's not just work at your state, but he's at work in your nation. He's not just work at your nation, but he's at work in your continent. He's not just at work at your continent, but he's at work in the world. He's not just at work in this world, but he's at work in the universe. And so if you can begin to understand that there's a macro thing at work, at the same time as your micro, it causes you to have hope and trust in something you can't see because you believe God's at work. And so a narrative helps us to understand that God cares and that God keeps his promises. And so if you understand that and you peer into the life of Joseph, there are a few things I want to say about Joseph that he would probably say to us if he was here. He'd probably say, number one, favor isn't always fair. Joseph, can, can I give you some context real quick about Joseph? Joseph is the favored son of his father, Jacob. Now, now this is a dysfunctional uh, relationship, uh, 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 and, uh, and nothing we, we see in, in Genesis is outside of that. This is really almost like uh, young and the restless. This is like, you know, bold and the beautiful. Y'all ain't saying amen. This, this, is, this is some drama, the drama, a dysfunctional relationship, because Jacob was not the favored son of his father. Isaac, his brother Esau was. And, and obviously, J uh, Jacob was wounded by this. And instead of learning from what happened to his father and his brother and breaking the cycle, uh, he actually repeats this with his own son. He, he develops his own pattern where he has a favorite son uh, of his firstborn to his wife, Rachel. And, and as if this word, these words uh, weren't enough, thank you very much, if that weren't enough, we find that, that Jacob has given... Jacob has given Joseph an elaborate robe. He, he's given him a robe. And if you understand this culture, you understand that what you wear has significance. What you wore ha had something to do with what you did for a living. It had something to do with, with who your family was. And it had something to do with your, your prestige and your honor and your class. And so when, when Jacob wore a robe that was different than everybody else in the household, it identified something. It, it said publicly that Jacob loved him more than his other sons. It, it said that, that he didn't have to do as much work as his brothers. It, it said that he was better than, than everyone else. It said that there was something in Joseph's life that was different. And I'm sure I'm sure Jacob loved the attention. All of us would, right? All of us would want to be favored by, by our father. But, but then we begin to see something else, that, that Jacob began to have dreams. Somebody shout dreams. Dreams that he began to share with his father and his brothers. Watch it, verse 5. It said, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. As if. The favor of his father and the elaborate robe wasn't enough. Now Joseph tells his brothers two dreams in chapter 37. Both make it sound like one day this young teenage boy would be ruler over his brothers and over his household. Dreams, dreams in this culture were taken seriously. Dreams uh, were viewed as direct messages from God. And when Joseph shared his dream, he basically says this is going to happen. And this, this would be unheard of in this culture. It, it would be unheard of because, because in his culture, favor always came to the older sons, not to the young ones. And, and now, if, as if this soap opera isn't enough, the unintended consequences of this favor in Joseph's life is that now his brothers hate him. The Bible says they hated him. That's a pretty strong word. The Bible says they hated him. They were sipping on some haterade. Come on, say amen, somebody. Now, there's the favor of the father there, and, and that wasn't fair. But then there's this reality of what Joseph is experiencing that's also not fair because the consequences of his favoritism has him now in a situation where he's not accepted by others. 
Joseph, you are the favorite son, but, but nobody wants to play with you. you. You are the favorite son, but nobody talks to you. One minute he's experienced the favoring of his father, but the next he's isolated and he's ostracized. And dare I say, he's frustrated. He's got the favor of the elaborate robe, but he's got the frustration of dealing with his family. So how do I remain faithful in the midst of my frustration? Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? This is the reality that favoring isn't always, always fair. When you, when you walk in favor, sometimes people don't know how to, how to treat you. Can I talk to some, some Josephs in the room? Uh, when, when you walk in favor, sometimes people don't know how to, how to treat you. When, you. when you walk in favor, sometimes the unintended consequences is you develop some haters. Sure, Jacob handled this poorly as a father, but if he handled it well, te history teaches us and this text teaches us that there still would have been some negative feelings because what's happening is countercultural in this text. Favor isn't always fair. I, I want to say to those of you in the room who are experiencing favor, when you, when you walk in favor, stop, stop trying to always explain what God is doing. Like sometimes, sometimes you just need to be like Mary and sometimes you just need to ponder some stuff in your heart. Uh, stop trying to prove to others that you're worthy of God's blessings. They'll never believe it. Stop trying to self-sabotage yourself so that you can fit in with everybody else. And to those of us in the room who are experiencing frustration like these other brothers, can I say a, a little word to us? Stop all the hating. We must learn to celebrate what God is up to in somebody else's life. Can I ask you a question. Will you be found faithful in the midst of your frustration? See, sometimes we got to learn how to thank God that God is using somebody else. We got to learn how to thank God when God is raising up somebody else, because the reality is this, that you don't stay in favor and you don't stay in frustration. Because see, those who are walking in favor now, next week might be walking in frustration. And those who are walking in frustration now might be walking in favor next week. Oh, second thing Joseph would probably say to us, he'd probably say, prideful people can be divisive. Prideful people can be divisive. Let, let, me, let me say that Joseph didn't do himself any favors here. You, you'll notice he handles himself totally different later in the text. But here in this chapter, he's young, he's immature, he's prideful, and he seems to be adding gasoline to the fire. I, I don't know too many people who like to be around prideful people. Uh, in Proverbs, it talks about pride coming before a great fall. In Psalms, it talks about a prideful person has little room for God. Joseph is young. Joseph is favored by his father. Joseph is unfairly treated. But if you look closely, Joseph is also prideful. Prideful people can be divisive. I'll never forget when I first started uh, playing sports in, uh, in high school and, and, and had a little bit of success and um, uh, news stations and, and colleges started to come. And I love baseball more than I love football, but I seemed to get most of the attention playing football. I was a quarterback in football. I was a point guard in, high, in basketball, and I was a, a pitcher in baseball. And, and so all these people would start coming to, to watch me play, and they start showing up at my house. And I'll never forget something one of my coaches said to me um, that I'll never forget. He said, look, he said, because uh, he watched me one time when people were asking me questions about, uh, about a game, and, and, I, and I focused on myself and, and kind of how I, how I handled it. He, he pulled me over to the side, and he said this. He said, listen, he said, you got to learn to take the blame but never take the credit. And I was 15 years old. I had no idea what that meant. He said, you got to learn how to take the blame but never take the credit. And I asked him, why would I do that? They're asking me about me. They're not asking me about my team. He said, listen, if you don't have an offensive line, none of what they're asking you about happens. If you don't have a good uh, running back or, or some good receivers, none of what they're asking you about is going to happen. If you don't have a coach who puts in the right plays and, and has the right practices set up for you to be prepared, none of this is going to happen. you got to learn how to take the blame but never take the credit. And so I said, well, what do I do? He said, he said well, listen, whenever you, when things go south, you own it. You own it. And you say, I could have played better. 
There's some things I could have done differently. But when they start asking you about success, you always put that off on your teammates and you say how amazing your, your offensive line was, how amazing uh, the coaching staff came up with preparation. You always defer. Let other people talk about how great you are. You don't talk about it yourself. Take the blame, but never take the credit. And I learned that lesson at the age of 15 years old, and it has followed me up until now, and I'm 42. And it has been a blessing to understand that prideful people can be divisive. Because when a person starts talking about themselves, and then there are other people who are a part of that success, and they never get acknowledged, people who are part of the team begin to say, well, if you're so great, you, you don't need us. If, you, if you're that amazing, but when you start recognizing people who are in the background, when you start bringing those who are invisible to others at the foreground and say, you know what, if it hadn't been for that person that you don't get to see who was in the trenches making this happen, then what happens is people become unified by the humble. They become unified by somebody that recognizes what, what other people don't see. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? Take the blame never take the credit. Let's slide down to verse 17. It says this in verse 17, they had moved on from there. See, see, uh, Joseph now is, is about to approach his brothers and watch, watch some stuff is about to go down. He said, they had moved on from here. The man answered, I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went, Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan, but they saw him in a distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Verse 19, this is, here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. These are his brothers. Some would say these are his half-brothers, but still, these are his brothers. Come on, say amen, somebody. These brothers are plotting to kill him. My third point to you is this, unchecked frustration leads to sin. Now, 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 hear me now, hear me now. I'm not saying frustration is a sin. It's not what I'm saying because all of us get frustrated. Just because you're frustrated doesn't mean you're sinning. But unchecked frustration will lead to sin. What, what do you mean, preacher? Uh, all of us get frustrated. All of us have moments when, we, when things don't go as, as we expect them. All of us have situations where, where we're confused and we're unsure of what God is up to. However, if we don't allow God to help us with our frustrations, then inevitably we will always lead into a sinful situation. These brothers are so fed up with the favor of their father and the pride of their brother that they have succumbed to their own anger, their own animosity about how they felt, and now they're willing to kill their own flesh and blood. We got to change. Touch your neighbor. High five them, elbow them or something, and say, sometimes we got to change our filter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you got the right neighbor. Touch the other neighbor on the other side and say, we got to change our filter. Yeah, 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 yeah. See, see, our filter, our filter can't always be our feelings. Our filter can't be our feelings when we're frustrated. I'm not saying your feelings aren't important. I'm saying your feelings can't be your filter. In that doctor's office, when we got that news, I was devastated devastated and I was disappointed and honestly I was angry those were my feelings but then I had to decide am I going to live on my feelings or am I going to live on God's word that's hard to do when you're frustrated but you got to have something that you go back to when your feelings don't match up with God's promise Come on, say amen, somebody. Let me say it this way. You, you, you have to go back to what God said. You, you may think that you're not attractive and not beautiful, but the Bible says that you're fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, you, you may think that you're not important, but the Bible says that you're a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a peculiar people. You, you're condemning yourself, but the Bible says that therefore there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. I'm not saying that they're not important. What I'm saying is they can't be your filter.
Things like anger and doubt and helplessness needs God's help. Things like fear and indifference and confusion need God's touch. There will be times when you feel like saying something you shouldn't. Sleeping with somebody you shouldn't. Come on, say amen, somebody. Watching something online that you shouldn't because we're frustrated and we're caught up in our feelings, but our feelings can't be our filter. God's word has to be our filter. I was at Mosaic's Global um, Networks Conference a couple weeks ago, and a guy by the name of David Anderson, who's up in the uh, Maryland area near D.C., he has a church called Bridgeway, and he said something because, you know, we were, this was right before the election, and, 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 and he captured something in words that I think I've always felt, but I didn't necessarily know how to say. And so sometimes I think um, uh, we experience these things I'm about to talk about when we're frustrated, and, and if we can put words to them, they help, help us own where we are and may help us to be free. Come on, say amen, somebody. Like anytime there's somebody that's addicted to something, sometimes you, you, you got to first have them admit that they have a problem. Like before you can do anything to help them, the first step is admitting that we have a problem. Right. And so I think that some of these things that he, he shares about about civic civic disunity and what happens to us sometimes as believers and what happens to sometimes in our society is, is the first thing he says is this is he says that sometimes there is the polarization of fear. Uh, a polarization caused by fear. Uh, sometimes what, what happens uh, in, in this story here, for example, is these brothers are polarized by fear because if what Joseph says is true, then the older brothers don't have the power and authority anymore, and they are afraid because that has, they've been identified mostly in their lives by being the older brothers. And so if I'm not that, then who am I? Fear. Fear, fear, fear is when we don't really know, we're not really sure who we are, and so sometimes it creates fear. We're not really sure what's going to happen, and so sometimes it creates fear. And so polarization is when people want to run to their corners and and what makes them feel safe. And so sometimes for some of us, that's our political party. For some of us, that's our ethnic or racial group. When when I go to churches, particularly like people of color churches, like black churches and and Filipino churches and and, and Hispanic churches, and I start talking to them about multi-ethnic ministry, one of the first things that comes out is fear. So wait a minute. I understand. I understand that, that one of the reasons why we have black churches is because black churches are, have been forced. See, you, you got to realize I grew up in an AME Zion church. What that meant is African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church. We were Methodists. But if you understand our history as Methodists, what happened years ago is our black Methodist brothers after slavery, after the, aboli- uh, the abolition of slavery, uh, they came to white churches and tried to pray, and the white leaders wouldn't let them pray in the front. And they told them, you're going to have to go to the back and pray. And so, no, they said, no, we, we, we're equal. I mean, we love God too. And they picked them up and escorted them to the back of the church. And so those black leaders said, you know what, if, if, that's, if we're second-class citizens in our church, we're going to create our own denomination. So they created the African Methodist Episcopal Zion. So here I am now, a leader in the Wesleyan Church, the Methodist movement, when my people were neglected earlier. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And so sometimes when I go to a black church and I say, no, 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 we got to get over our fear. We got we to gotta start learning to trust our white brothers and sisters again. There's this, no, 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 I don't know. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know about that. And so we get polarized by fear. Somebody shout fear. The second thing that sometimes tends to happen is there's, there's a politicalization fueled by anger. See, if, if it's not fear, our fear then sometimes propels us into anger. See, when what happens uh, around you or in you does not seem to match what God has said or what you know to be the truth, then what happens is sometimes it, it creates or fuels anger. Let me, let me talk about it in the context of, of, of the recent election. I'm not going to get political, but I'll just say this. There were people who were clearly at different ends of the spectrum. Some of that was caused by fear, some of that was fueled by anger. When you begin to see that there's injustice or when you begin to see that people aren't paying attention to your issues, then what happens is it causes you to want to get engaged, but when you get engaged, you get engaged fueled by anger that is perpetuated by fear. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Because because what you're really trying to do is you're trying to get people to go back to this place where you feel safe. 
and it just creates more division. What do you mean I got to come out of my safe place? What do you mean I got to engage in social and political process? What do you mean that, that I got to make decisions now that, that reflect uh, where I see God wants us to be? Because sometimes I just want to be in my safe corner. Sometimes I just want to be at a church where people look like me and I don't, I don't have to pretend. I, I want to be at a church where, where sometimes I don't have to deal with all of the tension that I deal with when I'm at work. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? Like sometimes that's where we are. We'd much rather be around people that we think are like us because that feels safe rather than deal with the tension of what it really means to grow. Last thing that happens is there's a radicalization inflamed by injustice. So fear, when fear is not dealt with adequately, we try to get engaged, we try to make a difference. But when we're trying to make a difference, it's coming out of anger. And then if what, what, what we're trying to do doesn't get accomplished, we become radicalized. Let me, let, me, let me use it this way, because some of y'all are like, what is he talking about? So I have a 22-year-old daughter, and I'll never forget the first day when she was, when she was about 14, 15, uh, this guy invited her to the prom, and he was older than she was. And I was like, no, you're not going to the prom with him. You got to wait. So she waited another year or so. She, he invited her again. I said, okay, I'll, I'll let you go this time. And I'm, I sat down with this brother. Behind me, when I sat down with him, I had this long sword. It was a sword of David that was behind me. Come on, say amen, fathers. And I said, bro, I'm a pastor. I love Jesus. But if you do anything to my baby, I will hurt you. See, see, see sometimes we don't know what's behind a person's radicalization. See, it, it could be just this, this father who cares about his daughter, who understands the law, who understands God's word, who understands grace. But if you mess with my baby, some of that might go out the window. See, what happens when we get radicalized, whether it's real or whether it's perceived in terms of our, the danger, uh, at this point what we say uh, is right to me and I don't care what it means to you. And I think in this political process we've seen people deal with fear. We've seen people be fueled by anger, and then we've seen people be radicalized. And if we're not careful, that can happen in the church. And where we're missing the possibility of having a conversation because we're so consumed with fear, we're so consumed with anger, and we're so consumed with what we think is the right answer to the question. So let me slide down to verse 21. So this happens with these brothers. They radicalize to the point where they want to kill their brother. And then verse 21 says this, when Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life. He said, don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to, the, to his father. Now, when you read this, it, it sounds like this is just a bad practical joke and that at least somebody in the family has come to their senses. But then Joseph's other brothers strip him of his robe, throw him in a cistern, and while they're eating, a caravan of people come, and they sell Joseph into slavery. They figured the least we could get out of this is some money. And can you imagine Joseph in this story? Can you imagine being thrown in the cistern? Can you imagine uh, being down there, and then eventually they bring you out, and you're like, you know, the practical joke is over, only for them to sell you? into slavery, and then Reuben comes back. If you read the story closely, he comes back, and he finds that his brother is gone. And this is my fourth point, and it's this. Not stepping up uh, publicly can prove costly. See, see uh, Dr. King said it this way. He says, the time is always ripe to do right. Come on, say amen, somebody. Let's say that together. The time is always Ripe to do right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Reuben doesn't step up. He thinks if he steps up later, he'll still have time. And the reality is that the, the time is always ripe to do right. Things, see, some of us, we, we, we just think about sin as the sin of, of commission by things that we do. But there's also the sin of omission. Like we can sin by not doing something. Come on, say amen, somebody. That, that sin is not just acts of, of doing, sin is also an act of not doing something I should do. Oh, can I help somebody in here? 
that, that it's not always lying and cheating and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes it's not speaking up when you're supposed to speak up. Sometimes it's not standing up for the rights of those who are being afflicted and marginalized and injustice, and you have the ability to do so, and you don't. Even though you know it's the right thing to do, that can be a sin of omission. When you stay silent, when you speak up, when, when you find yourselves in the positions like Reuben, and you're the only sane person in the room, you're the only one that seems to have a conscience that won't go along with what's happening around you. I'm here to remind you that God has placed you not to be there to go along with the crowd, but he's placed you there to speak up in the midst of the silence and declare when there's injustice. Now, you've seen it at home. You've seen it in this recent election. You've seen it at work. You've seen it in the church. And, and there are always these times where our private convictions at some point have to lead us into a public voice. Not stepping up to do what's right has major, major consequences. Now, this, this is uh, the part of the story that ends in chapter 37 with Joseph's brothers lying to their father Jacob and bringing back his robe and goat's blood. And, and we find that in this particular text, uh, Jesus, I mean, um, uh, Joseph is, is now sold into slavery. He's, he goes to where uh, this place called uh, Egypt, and, and he's in uh, Egypt, and he finds himself in what's called Potiphar's house, and he has to start over. Somebody say start over. And that's where some of us are. And, and in that part of the story, you find that God elevates Joseph in Potiphar's house. And, and Potiphar's wife has this eye now for Joseph. She wants to sleep with Joseph, but Joseph won't sleep with her. And, and Potiphar's wife lies on Joseph. And now Joseph is thrown into prison. Somebody shout prison. So Joseph is in Egypt. He's at a place with his parents. And that place of his parents, a favor, leads him to frustration. His brothers throw him in a pit. The pit wasn't enough because God raises him out of the pit and sends him to Potiphar's house. And now he's a place of power. And in a Potiphar's house, even in that place of favor where, he's, where, where Potiphar gives him uh, authority, the wife of Potiphar now has lied on him. And now Joseph is back in prison. Do you see how the ebbs and flows where it can't be based on your feelings? you got to remember what God said. you got to remember the dreams that God has given you. you got to remember the things that God has spoken over you because life is going to be up and down. Watch what happens in this text. I just got a couple more things I'm going to say to you, and I'm done. This next thing I want to say to you is prosper where you have been planted. Now, this is a word to all of us who are not in the best of environments. Sometimes our temptation is not to be satisfied or to not trust our current uh, environment, uh, but we, we start to murmur, we start to complain. It, it is frustrating because we have this place of un, unmet expectations. But I want to say to you, like Joseph, prosper where you've been planted. He was in a pit. The pit led to Potiphar's house, and he prospered. And when he prospered there, he got into some trouble, and he was thrown into the prison, but he prospered there. Prosper where you have been planted. Make the most of what God has given you. I know sometimes it's easy to complain. I know sometimes it's easy to have a, a sip on haterade, but prosper where you've been planted. When God is with you, uh, like the three Hebrew boys, you can, you can survive being thrown into a fiery furnace. When, when God is with you, they can throw you into a lion's den, Daniel, and you'll come out without a scratch. When, when God is with you, you can be in a dysfunctional family, Joseph, but not just come out surviving, but come out thriving but that's only when God when God is with you let me give you this last thing and I'm I'm gonna be done there there's something else that um David Anderson said that that helps me I hope it'll help you he, he gives some practical uh, application to those of us who are like Joseph and we've become bridge builders so, so you got to see that that Joseph is a picture of Jesus He's a shadow of Jesus in the Old Testament. He, he's a picture of what is to come. Joseph, Joseph, when he gets elevated, because after Potiphar lies on him, he goes into uh, the prison, he, he begins to interpret dreams. Now he's not just sharing dreams, but he interprets the dreams of two of Pharaoh's uh, uh, leaders that are thrown into the prison. And they forget about Joseph until Pharaoh start having, start having his own dreams that nobody could interpret. And, and one of the leaders who survived uh, says to Pharaoh, there's a man, there, there's a Hebrew boy that is in the prison that if you go to him, he might be able to interpret your dreams. 
And so Pharaoh calls for Joseph, this the same Joseph who went from the parent situation to the pit, from the pit situation to Potiphar's house, from Potiphar's house to a prison. And, and now from a prison, he's elevated to the palace. This, this is the same Joseph who, who blabbed his dreams a little, a little prideful when he told them, and, and it led to his brothers hating him. It, it led to his brothers uh, plotting to kill him. But now that same Joseph is now in the palace. Somebody shout favor. <laughs> if God said, he's going to do it. <laughs> oh, he's going to do it. And so he finds himself with Potiphar. And if you, if you study it closely, you'll find his attitude is quite different. When, 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 when Pharaoh asks him about the dreams, uh, he, he says, I can't interpret the dreams. He says, I can't do it. He said, but my God can. (laughs) He's learned that all this stuff that's happened in my life had nothing to do with me. It's got everything to do with my God. (laughs) And when God has a plan, it doesn't matter how smart I am. It doesn't matter how good I look. It doesn't matter how much I study. It doesn't matter how much I prepare. But when God has a plan brings things to pass. So let me give you these, these few things just in terms of practical application for people who are bridge builders. As a matter of fact, uh, Jacob says this about, about his son. He, he, he says that, 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 J, that Joseph is like a branch that reaches over a wall. Ah, when, when he's prophesying about the, his sons and their future, he says, Jacob is, is like a bow whose branches reach over the wall. In other words, he's a bridge builder. He, he's like Jesus in that he has his hand on the power but he also has his hand on the people. Oh, come on, help me somebody. See, see if you begin to understand, when, when God elevated Joseph at that time, uh, uh, what happened is uh, the, the dream that, that Pharaoh uh, gave. Let me go down to the, to the text. I just want to read it to you. It says this in chapter 45, verses 4 through 7. Um, uh, it, it, it talks about uh, Joseph re- revealing himself to his brothers, but this comes after Joseph interprets the dreams of Pharaoh, and he tells Pharaoh that there's going to be a famine. There's, there's going to be actually seven years of promise where there's more than enough, and then there's going to be seven years of famine and where there's gonna, not going to be enough, and he says, you need to choose somebody wise who will uh, govern uh, Egypt so that there's more than enough during the famine, and Joseph is thinking Pharaoh's going to choose somebody, and Pharaoh says, I want to choose you. Are y'all getting this? And so now this Hebrew boy who's ostracized by his, his brothers has now been elevated in, in Egypt in the palace. And now Pharaoh says there's only one other person in all of the land who's greater than you, and that's me. And so eventually his brothers and his father in the famine start looking for food. They start looking for help. And where do they go? They go to Egypt, not knowing that Joseph is in Egypt. And Joseph is second in command. And when they come to get the food, they come to Joseph's door. This is, this is where it comes. And Joseph then says to his brothers, verse 4, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Now, can you imagine being the brothers? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Like, oh, we we done, right? Like, you start having images of the the blood and the coat and the elaborate robe and and what you said about Joseph, what you did about Joseph. Revenge time. But watch what what happens. And now, this is Joseph talking. Do not be distressed. And do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God, somebody say God, sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Sometimes God takes you through that so he can bring you to this. And what I found is sometimes people quit when they're that close to this. Because they can't see the possibility of the frustration ending and the favor showing up again. And so they decide to quit. They decide to turn back. They decide to go back to what's safe because what they're afraid, there's fear. Or maybe there's anger. And God says, if you trust me, I will reveal 
my favor. I, I don't have time to deal with the other pieces. Let me just say this. Um, several years ago, um, a, a friend of mine invited me to, to uh, go boating on a lake with him. And we went out there, and my family, and uh, we were boating, and I had a great time. He had this uh, amazing boat. He was pulling us behind the boat, and, um, and and eventually, you know, the kids were out there, and I was like, man, you know what? I, 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 I want to get out on a, on, a, on a tube. So he throws out, he blows up his thing and throws out this thing called a mega bowl. He throws it, he throws it out behind the, behind the boat, and he starts pulling us on the boat, and I'm in this mega bowl. And, and, and then all of a sudden, he, he, while he's pulling me, he makes a turn. And, you know, I hadn't been on a mega bowl before. I didn't know why he was turning. And then all of a sudden, I fly through the air, hit the water. I'm like, what is, is he trying to throw me out of the back of all? And so I look up. I'm like, quit playing, man. Stop playing. What you doing? And he speeds up that boat. There's like this vein coming out of his forehead. He looks mad. He speeds up the boat, and he makes another turn. And he throws me, and I'm in this mega bowl, and I'm holding on with my dear life, and I finally let go of the mega bowl, and I crash into the water. Now, what I forgot to tell Pastor Mike was that I could kind of swim. And see, I'm one of those brothers that I'm good swimming when it's in a pool. <laughs> because, see, the key when you're in a pool, let me, let me say to the people who, who can't swim that good, and y'all know what I'm talking about, the key is just get to the edge. <laughs> if you could just get to the edge, underwater, above water, and then you just get up on the edge, yeah, we can all swim around here, Doc. We good. But when you're in a lake that's about two miles wide, the edge is a long way away. And so I'm going down in the water. The boat has sped off, and my kids are on the back of the boat, and all I could think is, God, don't let me die out here in front of my kids. He doesn't know that I have this little bit of fear about, about being in water because I saw one of my best friend's father die in a lake just like that. And so I'm going down in the water. I'm taking in the water. And, and all of a sudden, I hear something say, be still. I forgot I had a life jacket on. <laughs> and I started rising to the top. And I was like, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Here's my thing to you. When you really start walking with God, and you really start walking through frustration, eventually it's going to feel like you're going under. It's going to feel like you're taking in more problems, you're taking in more issues, you're taking in more uh, risk. But what I want to say to you in the midst of all of that stuff is be still and know that he's God. So let me go back up to these things that David Anderson says, and then I, I want to I finish. I, I feel like i got to give them to you, and then I'm going to be done. Uh, David Anderson says this. He says that when we are bridge builders, there's one thing that we got to learn to do is we got to learn to use difference as a doorway to dialogue. Use difference as a doorway to dialogue. He tells a story about how he, he was at a, a, a coffee shop or somewhere and his uh, lady comes up to give him his coffee and she has a tattoo on, on her cheek. And he's like, hey, what's, what's the tattoo? He said, uh, it's, she said, it's a name. I said, well, who's the name of? She said, uh, my ex-boyfriend. And he says, well, how do you feel about that now? <laughs> and she's like, not too good. I'm trying to get, get, get rid of this thing. And, and he uses difference not as something to, to divide them, not as something to keep them away from each other. He uses difference as a doorway to dialogue. See, too often what happens when we get into these frustrating moments, whether it's our politics, whether it's our race and ethnicity, whether it's what's happening around us, is we use our difference as something that is divisive instead of using our difference as a doorway to more dialogue. God, help me when I get into those moments where I don't think the way somebody else does whether that's through sexual orientation or whether that's through my politics or whether that's through uh, the different socioeconomic classes I'm in, use my difference as a doorway to more dialogue. Second thing he says is this. He says, see distance as a barrier to peace. See, sometimes the distance that we create becomes the barrier. It becomes the barrier for us to ever experience any kind of uh, peace. And so what I would say to you is this, is reserve the right to judge something only until you get close enough to it to understand it. I'm going to say that again because that's pretty good. Reserve the right to judge something only until you get close enough 
to really understand it. People aren't animals. They're human. And so comprehension comes with increased conversation. And so we got to get to the place where we get frustrated to where we open the door for dialogue about our differences and help me to understand your story. Because at some point, your story intersects with my story. And at some point, my story and your story intersects with God's story. And when our stories intersect with God's story, we begin to see the miraculous. And then the last thing he says, he says, do something for the cause of justice, even if it's small. Like, we got to learn how to, how to organize what, what, what is called the six Ps. We got to learn how to organize the, the pastors and the police and the people in the public sector, whether they're business people or not. We got to learn to uh, organize the protesters and the public educators and the politicians. But too often, we're, we're divided. But we got to learn how to bring people together and have conversation because when we have more conversation, it should lead us to, to better comprehension and better comprehension should lead us to better actions. And so if Joseph were here, he would just simply say, when life seems unfair, God always has a plan. I started with this story about our baby and that's where I want to end. 2006, we lose our baby a week before Thanksgiving. And we, we didn't know what to do. We were shaken. So we started to pray later, should we try again? Because the prophecy said by the end of 2007. But we were so consumed with grief that at some level we didn't even remember the prophecy. And so early in 2007, we started to try again. And lo and behold, before long, we were pregnant again. And the baby was due at the end of, of November, around the same time that we lost the first baby. And we get to November, and it's early November, and we're at a regular doctor's appointment, and we've passed all of the major points in time where they say you, you should be concerned. We've passed all of that, so we're sure everything is going to be all right. And we're in the doctor's office, and the doctor goes out, comes back in. Goes out, comes back in. And we're looking at each other, and we're like, God, not again. We can't take this again. We, we've been through this grief, but you asked us to trust you, and so we trust you. And so long story short, the doctor comes back in and says, Nicole, that's my wife's name, she said, your blood pressure is so high, you should be having a stroke right now. She said, we got to rush you to the hospital. We need to induce this baby. You have to have this baby today. And so all in the car as we're driving over to the hospital, we're praying, God, you keep your promises. God, you said, trust you. The prophecy was the end of this year. And I want to say to you, on November 10th, 2007, we had Josiah Gabriel Beatty. God keeps his promises. I'm going to say it again because I don't think you heard that. Because if you really get that, it might, it might bring a little joy out of your heart. God keeps his promises. This son of ours, and it says eight years old. He's nine now. We just celebrated his birthday a couple weeks ago. Uh, God keeps his promises. If he said he's going to do it, Joseph, he's going to do it. If he said he's going to do it, Dustin, he's going to do it. If he said he's going to do it, Anthony, he, he's going to do it. If he said he's going to do it in your life, I'm a witness that even though it feels like you're drowning and stuff, even though it feels like you can't get out, if you can just learn to be still and know that he's God, then everything he said he's going to do, he's going to do it. So in the midst of your frustration... Can you be faithful? In the midst of not knowing, in the midst, the Bible says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtain a good report. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which do appear are not made of those things. Why? Because we got to learn to have some faith. I know you can't see it. If you could see it, it wouldn't be faith. In the midst of your frustration, will you remain 
faithful. The steps of a righteous man or woman are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in their way. Why? When you are frustrated, trust God. Trust his word. He will bring it to pass. Yeah, I'm frustrated, but I'm going to remain faithful. Yeah, I, I don't have all the answers, but my God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all I could ask or think. I want to encourage somebody in here. I don't know if it's family that you're dealing with. I don't know if it's, it's your own personal health. I, I don't know if it's your finances. I don't know if it's just the, the, the desperation of what's happening in our community and our, our nation and our world right now. But I'm here to tell you that even though you may walk in a level of frustration, that God desires for you to be faithful. And if he said he's going to do something, he's going to do it. <laughs> he's going to do it. Please stand. Please stand. Let me just say a quick prayer, and I know Pastor Anthony's going to come up. Father, you know the plans that you have for us. They are plans of good, not of evil, to prosper us, to give us a future and a hope. God, we, we're so thankful that those things are not to harm us. Even though at times, God, when we're in that place of frustration, it feels like you're out to get us. It feels like everything is crumbling around us. It feels like we're taking in water and that we're about to go down. But God, help us. Help us in those moments to be still and know that you're God. Help us in those places where we don't have the answer, when we, we can't even articulate to others what, what we're feeling and what we're going through. Help us to simply trust you. And God, when it's all said and done, May we be found faithful. We thank you for what you're doing. We thank you for the things we can't even see yet, God, that you're orchestrating and you're working out for our good. We thank you, God, that like, like Joseph, like Joseph, we're, we're in a place sometimes where we have our hands on the power and we have our hands on the people. So help us to be humble in those moments. Help us to, to operate in favor, but also help us to operate with sensitivity, understanding that there's always uh, dual nature going on. There's always the prophetic, but there's always the personal. And God, help us to relate to others while we're also relating to you. And ultimately, when it's all said and done, may you be glorified and may the enemy be terrified. It's in the matchless name of Jesus we pray. Let everybody shout amen. amen. Can we give God a mighty hand clap of praise? Amen.